In your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 5 this morning. Hebrews chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 5 and we'll read to verse 10. Hebrews 5, 5 says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today, Lord, that you would help us to have a full, Lord, a more complete understanding of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the great salvation that you have granted to your people on his behalf. So, Lord, teach us today and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember that Hebrews chapter 5 breaks down into three parts. Verses 1 to 4, which we've dealt with, describe the office and duties of the high priest according to the law. The second part, verses 5 to 10, is applying these offices and duties of high priest to Jesus Christ, showing him to be the fulfillment of this type and the only one who is qualified to serve in this role as great high priest over the people of God. The third part is verses 11 to 14, where the apostle is reproving the church for their failure to be sound and stable in these points of doctrines. Last week, we began this section where the apostle is applying the truths of verses 1 to 4 to our Lord Jesus Christ, proving him to be the legitimate and only high priest who can actually reconcile God with sinful men. And we saw last week that Jesus did not seek this office on his own initiative or authority, but was rightfully called by God the Father to this office. He did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but received a call from God. And this call was on the basis of his relationship with the Father as the Son. And this is why he brought forward Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Then he further confirmed this by quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4, where the Father swore to the Son that he would be made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then in verse 7, we saw the fulfillment of this role as high priest seen during the life and ministry of Christ. That during the days of his flesh, from his incarnation until his death, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. And this not merely for his own benefit, not merely for his own deliverance, but his sufferings and the prayers accompanying them were done on our behalf. Him being a great high priest necessitated him suffering for us and offering prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears for the sake of his people. All of his life was offered up to God for our benefit. And he prayed to his father that he would save him from death. And again, he did this, not merely for his own personal interests, but also for ours, knowing that the only way that we could be redeemed 
was by his offering his own life as a substitute for us. He desired God's deliverance from death. But this did not come through the avoidance or the experience of death, but rather through the resurrection from the dead. For it is in his death and resurrection that we can have the forgiveness of sins. And God heard him. God heard him because of his piety. God delivered him from death. Not by, again, the avoidance, not by translating him immediately into heaven, but rather through experiencing death and then resurrecting him from the dead. And this is where we left off last week in verse 7. So we'll pick up today in verse 8. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. There, he begins by saying, although he was a son. Here, he's stressing the unique relationship that existed between Jesus and the Father. He was the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And as the son, in this way, he stands in a unique relationship with God. He has this close relationship, a relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, it says there, speaking of the Son, John 1, 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me, has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received uh, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Here, when it's speaking of him being the Son, he is the Son who became flesh, And when we see the Son, we see the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. That they, the Father and Son, have this relationship that is unique, exclusive there to them. And the Father loves the Son because of this. It says in John 3, 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. And then in John 5, 20, It says, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. We remember in Matthew 3, 17, at his baptism, it said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in Isaiah 42, 1, it says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. God, the father loves the son. He's pleased with the Son. He delights in the Son above all others, right? They have this unique relationship with one another. All these verses are testifying that Jesus Christ and the relationship that he has with the Father, in that he shares the same nature as him. He is equally divine with God the Father. We remember Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, this was the point he was making at the very beginning of the book. Hebrews 1, 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days 
has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He is greater than the angels because he has a greater name than they. And the name that he has is the Son. He is the Son of God. So God the Father has this unique relationship with God the Son. He delights in him. He loves him above all others. And yet here he says that although Jesus was a son, right, he's saying something that is jolting or it seems to be in contradiction to this relationship, to this position that Jesus has with God the Father. Although he had this unique relationship with God, although God the Father loves him supremely, God did not spare him and did not protect him from experiencing many hardships, afflictions, and sufferings when the Son took on human flesh. So great were his sufferings that in verse 7 we remember that he had to offer up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Right, And it would seem that these two things are in contradiction. Right, If God loves the Son, if he has this special relationship with him, then why did God ordain all of these sufferings for him to endure? Why did God not protect him? Why did he not spare him from all of these things? Why did he subject the Son to a life of such sorrow and misery that culminated in this cruel, shameful death on the cross. If God is in control of all things, and we know that God is, and if nothing could happen to Jesus apart from the will of his Father in heaven, and nothing could happen to him apart from God's will, then don't the sufferings of Christ prove? Are these not evidences that God does not love him, that he is not the Son of God, that God is not well pleased with him? This is how the natural man reasons. This is how the carnal mind of man works. In the unbelieving, right, in those who do not have the eyes of faith, the sufferings of Christ in the mind of sinful men, they prove that he was not God's chosen one. They are evidence to them that he is not the Son of God, that he was not the Lord's Christ. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, this was the taunting, the mocking, the ridiculing that Jesus was exposed to while he was hanging on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 38. It says, At that time, the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him, were also insulting him 
with the same words. There, the mocking of these religious leaders against Christ was specifically at this point. If you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Right? If God truly delights in you, and if you are his son, well, then of course he delights in you. Then why is God not delivering you? Why is God allowing you to suffer such a cruel and such a miserable death? Right? The mocking of the leadership proves this point. He trusts in God, they say. If God truly delights in him, then God will rescue him from the cross. But because God did not rescue him according to their own carnal wisdom then in their mind this proves that God does not delight in him and that he is not the Son of God. Also, this was a part of the temptations that Jesus faced in Matthew chapter 4. When the devil came, he kept pressing him on this point, on the issue of divine sonship, that if you are the Son of God, then why is God, your Father, failing to take care of you? Why is he allowing you to starve to death in the wilderness if you are his son? Why is he failing to glorify you, failing to protect you, failing to provide for you? Right? The basis of the devil's temptation was to have Jesus doubt the goodness of his father, the love that the father has for the son on the basis of his hardships and on the basis of his sufferings. And this is what he has been doing since the very beginning. So many years before in the Garden of Eden. There he was questioning Adam and Eve on the goodness of God. If God loves you, if God cares for you, if God is truly a good creator to you, then why is God depriving you of the knowledge of good and evil? And so he did with Christ. If you are the Son of God, then why is your Father depriving you of all of the things that he has promised you. And all of this comes because the devil and carnal men do not understand the wisdom of God. They do not understand the power of Jesus Christ and him crucified. They do not understand that God brings life out of his death, that his glory comes through his sufferings, that before he sits on his throne, he must wear a crown of thorns. In the sufferings of Jesus Christ, Rather than disproving his sonship, they actually serve to prove that he is the Son of God and that he is indeed the Lord's Christ. Because what is the Lord's Christ sent to do? Why did he take on human flesh? But to save his people from their sins. And what is the only way that he can deliver his people from their sins? But by offering up his own life as a sacrifice for them by undergoing all of his sufferings, culminating in his greatest sufferings, which is his death on the cross. But this is what people don't understand. They don't see it. But we see it if we have the eyes of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31, speaks of this wisdom of God and how this wisdom of God, seen in the person of Christ, and specifically in the sufferings of Christ. This wisdom of God is the power of God to us. We love it, but to the world, to the unbelieving, to Jews and Greeks who have no faith, it is foolishness and it is a stumbling block for them. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. 
says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There, his lowly condition, the poverty of his life, the shamefulness of his death, these things prove to be a great offense and a stumbling block to many people, both to Jews and Greeks. It's foolishness. It is a stumbling block. It is offensive to them. How could he be the son of God, yet have no form or beauty that we would desire him? Right? The sufferings of Christ were and remain foolish to Greeks in a stumbling block to Jews. But to those who have the mind of Christ, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand, we have come to see and realize that the sufferings of Christ are the very source and basis of our salvation. That his sufferings, rather than disqualifying him from serving as the Christ, as the only mediator between God and man, as the great high priest over the household of God, these sufferings are essential for his fulfillment of these roles. Jesus cannot be the mediator between God and man. He cannot be the great high priest. He cannot be the Christ without suffering on the cross. And this is why he begins by saying, although he was a son, although it would appear to carnal wisdom that his sonship and his sufferings were mutually exclusive, they are not exclusive, but rather these things stand together in perfect harmony according to to the will of God. Now, it ought to be said by way of application that if the only begotten Son from the Father, if the natural Son who shares the same nature of the Father, if he was not exempt from sufferings, then how can the adopted sons be surprised when we face various hardships, trials, and tribulations in this life? Yet, nearly always, when we face hardships, what do we do? We begin to doubt the goodness of God. We begin to doubt the love of God. We begin to doubt the wisdom of God, the presence of God, right? If God loves me, if I am his child, then why am I suffering? Why is he not giving me what I want? 
Right? Why am I going through all of these hardships if I am his son? Why is God depriving me of this good if I belong to him? But the presence of sufferings are no evidence of a lack of God's love and goodness for a man. But rather, they're the opposite. Right? Did the sufferings of Christ prove that God did not love him? Were these evidences that he was not the son of God or that God did not care for him or have this special relationship with him? No, of course not. Actually, this proved that he was the son of God and that God did care for him because God's purpose was to exalt him through his sufferings. Because after he died on the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And as it is with Christ, so it is with his body, right? With his people. Our sufferings do not prove that God does not love us, but rather our sufferings prove They are evidence that God does love us, that God does care for us, and that God is very concerned with training us up in righteousness through our sufferings. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 makes this point explicitly, that the absence of suffering is evidence that we are illegitimate and that God does not care for us. So if we have a carefree life, free from any hardships. That should be what's very concerning to us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as his sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines." Jesus was the Son, and during his sufferings, during the days of his flesh, he was every bit as much of the Son as he was before his incarnation, and every bit as much the Son as he was after his glorification. His sufferings did not mean that he ceased to be the Son, and his sufferings did not mean that God the Father ceased to have this unique relationship and this love and this care for him. And so it is with us. Our sufferings do not cause us to cease being children of God, nor do they separate us or deprive us of God's love and care for us. No amount of suffering could change Jesus' relationship with his Father, so no amount of suffering can alter our relationship with Christ or with his Father. As it says in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There he says, he, Jesus, learned obedience. The life of Christ was one of perfect obedience to God. From his birth to his death, he always did the will of his father. He yielded his entire life to God and presented to him a life of perfect conformity and perfect obedience to the law of God. God's law is God's standard of perfect righteousness. In the life of Christ, both his inner man and his outer man, his heart, his mind, his will, his words, his actions, all of them were in perfect harmony, perfect conformity to the will of God that is revealed and made known in the law of God. Whatever the law required in terms of duty and obligation, Jesus perfectly obeyed these things. And whatever the law forbids, Jesus avoided so that his life and his life only can truly be described as a life of absolute, universal, perfect obedience to God. How many times did Jesus sin in his life? Zero, right? No sin was in him, right? He was made like us in all things except one. He was without any sin. Just as we read from our catechism question this morning, without the guilt of original sin and without ever transpiring any guilt from his actual sins because there was no sin ever found in Jesus Christ. He always perfectly did the will of God. John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, 38, For I have come down out of heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He always did the will of God. His life was perfectly obedient. And this was necessary because he must fulfill all righteousness. His righteous life, his life of perfect obedience is necessary for our redemption. For not only must our sins be atoned for by a spotless sacrifice, but also we are lacking in righteousness, right? We have two things against us that deprive us or keep us from being in the presence of God. One, we have no righteousness that is acceptable in the sight of God. And then secondly, we have the filth of all of our unrighteousness. And both of these preclude us from the presence of God and from being in heaven, In Jesus' perfect righteousness, his obedient life, answers, solves both of these problems. Because as a perfect sinless man, he was able to offer his perfect sinless life on behalf of ours. And to suffer and die because of our unrighteousness. And because he was a perfectly righteous man, then his righteousness can be given to us, accounted to us, so that we are clothed with his perfection, and now we are fit to be in the presence of God. So his righteousness was necessary both to manifest and to show that he alone is the sacrifice that can take our sins away. And his righteousness in his obedience is necessary because it is given to us as the basis of our righteous standing before God. He obeyed God for our sake, right? For us, for our benefit. 
as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He had no sin, but he made him to be sin for our sakes, right? For our benefit, so that we who have no righteousness could become the very righteousness of God. Now, this obedience of Christ is both general and specific. It is general in that he obeyed every facet of the law of God, right? In his daily life, as he went through his daily living, he always did the will of God. He perfectly loved God the Father with all of his heart, soul, might, and strength, and he perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. In whatever situation he faced that required love of God or love of neighbor, he perfectly executed those things in the way that he lived day in and day out. So generally speaking, we can say from birth to death, his life was one of perfect conformity to the will of God. But also, specifically, specifically, he was obedient in his sufferings, and especially to the point of death, even death on the cross, that his obedience was most clearly manifested in evidence to us in his willingness to go and die on the cross on our behalf. And this act of obedience is unique to him because none of us are ever, we may be called to die for our faith, but we're not called to die as a sacrifice for the sins of other people. But Jesus was called to die and to offer up his life and to be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As it says in Philippians 2.8. Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. His obedience was seen in all of his life. But it was most clearly seen, most clearly manifest or displayed openly and publicly by his willingness to go die on the cross. When God the Father called the Son to die a shameful death on the cross, right? if at any point he was going to rebel against the will of God, this would be the point in which he would rebel. Because this was his greatest test. This was the greatest act of obedience God called him to yield his life unto. And when God called him to die on the cross, what did he do? Not my will, but your will be done. And he willingly went without murmuring, without complaining, without resisting. He didn't run away. He didn't do any of those things. But he willingly went to the cross like a lamb being led to the slaughter. This is the way in which he did. Humble submission to the will of God because his delight was always to do the will of God and to finish his work. The sufferings of the cross are the supreme manifestation of his life of obedience. Of his willingness to die, it shows his conformity to God's will. It shows his obedience and his submission to the will of his Father. Isaiah chapter 50 Isaiah chapter 50, in verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 50, verse 5. Says, The Lord God has opened my ear. 
And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. There, God opened his ear, meaning God gave him an open ear to the will and to the word of God, and he was not disobedient. He never rebelled against it. He did not turn back from whatever God called him to. And even when God called him to give his back to those who would strike him, to give his cheeks to those who would pluck out his beard, to give his face to those who would humiliate him by spitting in his face, did Jesus resist at that point? No. He willingly went to the cross. And this is what he means when he says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, we must ask, in what way is it said that Jesus learned obedience, right? In what way did he learn to be obedient? What does the apostle mean by this? For the learning of obedience can be meant and understood in different ways. And we must be very careful that we do not assume or accuse or accredit any imperfection to Jesus Christ. Because there is a difference in the way that he learned obedience and a difference in the way that we learn obedience. Right? When he says that Jesus learned obedience, he does not mean that there was periods of time where Jesus was ignorant of some aspect of the will of God. And then as he was taught the will of God, he would incorporate that into his faith and into his practice, and then he would conform his life to that aspect of God's will after making some discovery of the will of God. He cannot mean it in this way, because if that was true, then whenever he was even in his ignorance, he would still be committing sins against God. He would still be violating the law of God, though his sin would be done in ignorance. But Jesus had a perfect understanding of the will of God. John chapter 5, verse 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. God the Father shows God the Son all things that he is doing. Nothing is hidden from him. All things are disclosed there to the Son. He had a perfect knowledge and understanding of the will of God. Now, this is different from us because we know in part. Jesus did not know in part. Jesus knew perfectly. We know in part. We all have areas of ignorance, areas of blindness, where we are growing in the knowledge of the will of God. It can be true of us that there is some aspect of God's will that we're ignorant of, and that as we come to an understanding of it, then we change our practice, we conform our life, our thoughts, our faith, more to the will of God as we learn and have a greater understanding of His will found in His Word. And this is because we know in part. And our life is one of... Continual growing in our understanding of the will of God as we become more and more familiar with it. But this is not true of Jesus. He always had perfect understanding of the will of God so that he did not grow in this type of, out of this kind of ignorance that we grow out of. Also, he cannot mean that Jesus learned obedience and that he obeyed by degrees in his life. So that in his early part of his life, he was disobedient in certain areas. But then as he learned obedience, more and more of his life was conformed to the will of God. Jesus did not experience progressive sanctification like we experience. 
He experienced complete, absolute sanctification. And when did his sanctification occur? It occurred from his inception. He was consecrated or sanctified perfectly, completely holy, even from the womb. So that when he came into this world, he perfectly obeyed God and he did not grow in his obedience to God as we grow in our obedience to God. We are growing in that we are conforming our life more and more to the will of God. And we are becoming more obedient, but our life is a mixture of obedience and disobedience. And in that way, we are learning to be more obedient. But is Jesus, was his life ever a mixture between obedience and disobedience? No, it cannot be. So he cannot be said to learn in that he's becoming more obedient to God and getting rid of these areas of disobedience. So then, in what way did he learn obedience? Well, here we notice that his learning obedience is specifically connected to his sufferings, right? He learned obedience through what he suffered, right? He learned obedience in that God the Father put him through various trials and tribulations. He exposed him to many sufferings, And in all of these sufferings, he manifested his obedience to God. He learned by way of experience. As he experienced these sufferings that God put before him, these many and various trials, his obedience was tested in each of these things. And whenever it was tested, it always resulted in him yielding to God perfect obedience. But in them, he learned the difficulties of this life. He learned what it is to have a body of weakness such as ours. He learned the difficulty of going and enduring temptation. He learned the sorrows of life by way of experience, by himself being subjected to these sufferings by the will of God. Jesus did not live out his life in some ivory tower, free and above all of the hardships associated in this life but rather his life was lived in the crucible of sufferings. And he faced more sufferings than any of us will face. It's not even close, the amount of sufferings that he faced throughout his life. He faced the fiery trials of this life. And this was necessary both to manifest his obedience and also so that he would have a familiarity with our sufferings. This is why he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. The reason he is able to help those who are being tempted is because he suffered when he was tempted. He learned by his constant experience of sorrows and griefs what it is to suffer under temptation. He knows the difficulties of these afflictions. He is intimately acquainted with all of our trials and all of our hardships. He knows the strength the grace, the mercy that is needed during the time that we are here on this earth. And this is because he learned obedience through what he suffered. He has an experience of these things. So now he is able to come to our aid and he can sympathize with us and help us in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Hebrews 2 14 says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless 
him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. There, it is his experience of sufferings, of temptations, that causes him as a high priest to be able to come to the aid and to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses and in the sufferings and the temptations that we face in this life. Also, Hebrews 4.14. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There, he can sympathize with us, because he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He learned these things through his sufferings. He learned what it was to experience the hardships and the difficulties of this life. And here, this learning came specifically through suffering, right? By exposure to the hardships and the afflictions of this life, all of which culminated in his death on the cross. That's what we read earlier from Philippians 2, verse 8. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How can Jesus be obedient to death on the cross without experiencing a death on the cross? Right? This is how he learned obedience. He learned it by going through it, by experiencing these things. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death in order to manifest and prove his faithfulness to God. And it is by means of his sufferings that he had the occasion to exercise all of the graces and all of the virtues of his perfect, sinless life. Humility, love, self-denial, patience, trust, right? All of these virtues were found absolutely and perfectly in the holy nature of Jesus Christ. And his sufferings were the occasion given by God for him to exercise and to practice the perfection of his virtues. Each trial placed before him he learned obedience through what he suffered. He gained experiential knowledge by passing through the various trials and tribulations that accompanied him throughout his life. And we know from Isaiah 53 that his life was filled with such sufferings that it is described, he is described as a man of sorrows and one who is acquainted with grief. His life was one of sorrow and constant grief because of the sufferings that God the Father put on him. And in Psalm 22, verse 6, he says of himself, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of man and despised by the people. He was considered a worm. This is how he was treated. This is the amount of his sufferings that he faced in this life. And these sufferings, these were the testing ground where his obedience to God was manifested over and over and over again. 
And it did not matter how severe the trial that God the Father put him under, what did Jesus always do? He always perfectly obeyed the will of his Father in heaven. He always submitted. And then the final one of these, the greatest of all of these, was going to the cross. And when the Father called him to go to the cross, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and he went there and he willingly offered up his life as a sacrifice for us. And in doing this, this is his consecration. This is, which we'll deal with next week, that he was made perfect. He was consecrated in this way. He was set apart as this righteous sacrifice that is able to take away our sins. It is his obedience to God that proves him to be the only sacrifice that can actually take away our sins and that he and he alone is fit to serve as the great high priest over the household of God. Now, we'll turn to that next week when we pick up in verse 9. But one last point to make in terms of learning obedience as this applies to us. Now, we're not learning obedience to the same degree as Christ and with the same purpose as Christ, right? In that none of us are serving as great high priests over the household of God and none of us, our obedience and righteousness is making us proving and manifesting that we are a suitable sacrifice for the sins of other people. All of that is evident in Christ, but it's not evident in us. However, there is continuity in that we also need to learn obedience and we need to have occasions to exercise the fruits of the Spirit and the graces of God that He has given to us. And what is the proving ground that God used in Christ? And what is the proving ground He continues to use in the lives of His people? It is our sufferings. We also learn obedience through suffering. We must manifest our faithfulness to God we must manifest the fruits of the Spirit exercised in us through the occasion of suffering. Undergoing suffering according to the will of God, right? This is highly instructive for the people of God. How can we exercise the virtues of love? How can we exercise the fruits of the Spirit? How can we exercise the grace of God poured into our life without some occasion by which to do these things? in order to bring these things about. So, for example, Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. How can we bear the burden of another? Right? This is a component of love, of what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. How can we bear one another's burdens if we don't have a brother who is under some burden? It is the brother... And the burden that he is under that gives me the occasion to bear his burden with him and so manifest this component, this aspect of what it means to love my neighbor as myself. Or what about this verse? I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How can we practice this aspect of love that is expected of us? Even Jesus says, if we don't love in this way, then we're not sons of God in heaven because God loves even the wicked and the unjust, by sending his reign to fall upon them. How can we love our enemies? How can we pray for those who persecute us if we don't have any enemies? If there is not some persecutor who is bringing and tormenting us, right? The practice of this aspect of love requires there to be some tormentor so that we can 
practice this particular aspect of love. Or it says in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So instead of repaying evil with evil, we're supposed to repay evil with good. But how can that be practiced if someone's not doing evil to me? Right? Someone doing evil to me is necessary so that I can practice this aspect of love, that I can do good to them and I can pray for them. And this is why God will raise up an enemy. God will raise up some persecutor, someone who will do evil to us. He will bring these things into our life so that we can practice this love, so that we can learn obedience through what we suffer. How can I forgive as God in Christ has forgiven me unless someone sins against me? How can we endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ without going through some suffering? How can we learn to be content without some deprivation of a good that we desire? How can we learn to practice patience without going through some trial? Our faith, our love, our obedience, our faithfulness to God, our humility, our self-denial, our patience, right? All of these are virtues that are to be true of us, that are to accompany our faith and our Christian life. And all of these are learned Many times they are experienced and they are manifested in our life through sufferings. And gaining this kind of knowledge does not come easily, but it will cost us dearly. But it's worth it. It is worth it because what can be of more value than practical experience of obedience to God? To learn obedience is a gift from God. And this learning as we see in our verse, requires suffering. Christ learned obedience through sufferings, and we have much more to learn than Jesus Christ. Therefore, God designs our sufferings to this end, and to this end, God blesses our sufferings by causing them to be the occasion by which he teaches us and instructs us in his will. And it has often been the case that those who suffer most, those who are most afflicted by God, are the most humble, the most holy, the most wise. They have the greatest faith and the greatest obedience to God. This is the way it often is in the church and in the history of the church, that those who have suffered the greatest under the hand of God's providence are those who have the greatest faith and the greatest righteousness there in the church. And so we are reminded again, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. When we undergo these things, God is treating us as sons, just as he did his own son. And he is giving us the occasion, the experience, by which we can practice all of the virtues of love that he has poured into our heart through his Holy Spirit. And this will be a time of great comfort and consolation to us, because when we go through these things, and when we prove ourselves in these testing grounds, it confirms to us the genuineness of our faith that we truly are children of God, and then it gives us great hope for the life to come. Hope for the life to come that we will indeed enter into the kingdom of God and that there will be a reward waiting for us when we enter into that kingdom. So with that in mind then, let us press on. Let us press on throughout this life and let us, as our Lord Jesus Christ did, let us also learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Let's pray. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have granted to us your holy word, Lord, to instruct and to teach us, Lord, in your will. And Lord, we know that this is your will, that we would believe, Lord, in your Son, that we would put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you that his sufferings, Lord, all that he underwent on this earth, Lord, every single trial, every tribulation, Lord, every persecution, all of his mocking and ridicule, none of it was without purpose. None of it was accidental. But all of it came about from you, and all of it had a purpose as it came from you. And that is our redemption. That every single thing that he suffered, he did so for our sake. Lord, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest over the household of God. And so, Lord, we pray that rather than seeing the cross of Christ as a stumbling block or a foolishness, Lord, rather than seeing it as something that is repulsive or repugnant to us, that would make us doubt and question, Lord, your wisdom, or doubt and question your love for your only begotten Son. Lord, may the presence of the cross of Christ be an even greater confirmation to us that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Son of God, that he was the Lord's Christ, and that he is the only one who can serve as mediator between God and man, and the great high priest over the household of God, that his sufferings, rather than causing us to question and doubt his sonship, Lord, that these would be affirmation to us, for we know that the reason you sent him into the world, Lord, was to suffer and die for our sins. And so, Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray that the cross of Christ, Lord, that it would be to us our joy, Lord, that it would be to us the very wisdom and the very power of God. Lord, not only as it was experienced by Jesus, but, Lord, also as it will be experienced in his body, Lord, by his people. Because just as you called him to take up his cross, to go outside the camp, and there suffer on our behalf. So also, Lord, you call us to daily take up our cross and to die and to follow after Christ. And that we also must go outside the camp and suffer shame and contempt and reproach with him. Lord, we know that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that, Lord, if we are absent of any sufferings, Lord, it proves that we are not your children, but rather we are illegitimate. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, as you see fit, according to your will, and Lord, according to your perfect wisdom, Lord, that you would grant to us all that is necessary for our sanctification and, Lord, to progress us in our salvation. Lord, even those sufferings that you ordain, Father, we pray that you would bless them, Lord, to the end for which you designed them which is to sanctify and to purify us and to teach us obedience. And that, Lord, when we come under your hand of discipline, when you as our Father chastise us as your sons, Lord, that we would not regard it lightly, and that, Lord, we would not kick against it or murmur and complain, Lord, be discontent under your hand, but rather that we would receive it from you and that, Lord, it would have its work within our life and that it would prove and manifest our obedience to you, and that, Lord, you would use it to 
remove whatever dross of sin remains in our life. So, Lord, teach us in all things. And, Lord, we pray that you be with us and you help us, Lord. And we thank you that you have given us such a high priest who, whenever we suffer, is able to sympathize with us, Lord, in all of our weaknesses because he also suffered when he was tempted and because he experienced all things as we do except he did it without sin. So, Father, we thank you for providing such a one as our Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to reconcile us to you and who is able to serve as high priest and bring about our salvation. And, Lord, may we look to him and him alone as our captain and as the source of eternal salvation. And, Lord, may we never take our eyes off of him. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.